0: If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Peter tonight. You can turn there. As you are, turn in there. I read this story last week, and it made me laugh, so I thought it might make you laugh too. Here it is. After a meeting, I was coming out of a hotel, and I was looking for my car keys. They were not in my pockets. A quick search in the meeting room. They weren't there. Suddenly, I realized I must have left my keys in the car. So there's a woman writing, and she says, my husband has shouted at me many times for leaving the keys in the ignition. I can understand why. That's not a good idea. My theory is the ignition is the best place not to lose them. Okay. His theory is that the car will be stolen. Immediately, I rushed to the parking lot, and I came to a terrifying conclusion. His theory was right. The parking lot was empty. Hi, Will. <laughs> I immediately called the police. I gave them my location, my car number, Description of the place where I parked, etc. I equally confess that I'd left my keys in the car and that it had been stolen. And then I made the most difficult call of all to my husband. Honey, I stammered. I always call him honey in times like these. I left my keys in the car and it's been stolen. There was a period of silence. I thought the call had been dropped. But then I heard his voice. I'm just going to read this as written not condoning his language. Idiot, he shouted. I dropped you off at the hotel. (laughs) Now it was my time to be silent. Embarrassed, I said, well, can you come pick me up? And he shouted again. I will as soon as I manage to convince this police officer I have not stolen your car. (laughs) I have no idea if it's true or not, but I thought it was funny. (laughs) But the reason we're laughing is that we can relate. We understand what it's like to be forgetful. How many times have you used the ring feature on your Apple Watch to find where your phone is? How many AirTags have you bought to put on literally everything so you stop losing your wallet? Or how about this? Have, Have you ever lost something that was in your pocket? Or worse, was in your hand? Yeah, I've definitely never done anything like that. Have you ever called your phone to try to find out where it is only to realize that you made the call with your phone? <laughs> yeah, I've never done that either. <laughs> we laugh because we're forgetful. In our text tonight, Peter actually talks about two different types of forgetfulness. There's an innocent sort of a human type of forgetfulness But then there's this deliberate sort of forgetfulness, one that's employed by the false teachers in our text. Peter understands that you and I are forgetful. But Peter's not the only one that understands that you and I are forgetful. God understands too. God's not forgetful. That's not what I'm saying. God remembers everything. His knowledge is limitless. There's nothing that escapes his purview. There's nothing that he forgets. Did you know that even when the Bible talks about God forgiving us, The language is precise. The text doesn't say that God forgets our sin. It says that He chooses to remember our sin no more. Forgetting is passive, but what God does when He forgives us is active. He chooses to remember our sin no more. God's not forgetful, but He knows that you and I are forgetful sometimes. And often, at least in spiritual terms, we don't often struggle with short term memory. We, we remember what's right here. The problem is we remember what's happened in the distant past. We struggle with long-term spiritual memory. God knew that to be true, so he established some practical reminders for his people. You remember what happened in the book of Joshua when the people of Israel are, are leaving the promised land, um, or they're entering into the promised land, rather, and Joshua's leading them, and, and they're about to go conquer the, the nations on the other side of the Jordan River, but they have a problem. They're on one side of the Jordan River. They've got to cross the Jordan River. It's that flood stage. There's no way you're gonna get a million people across a flooding river. So what does God do? He stops the river and the people can cross on dry land. A million people cross the, the river, but God knew that they would forget. So he commands one man from each tribe, 12 leaders of the 12 tribes, to go to the bottom of the river, riverbed to gather one of the giant stones to set it on the side of the riverbed as a monument, so that when the generations afterward would, would ask their mom and dad, What is that monument doing there? What's that for? And they could say, That was when God rescued us, when He stopped the water and allowed us to walk by on dry land. Do you know what that monument of rocks is called? An Ebenezer. An Ebenezer is a, a symbol, a practical symbol of God's past faithfulness. If you've ever sang, Come now, fount of every blessing, Now you know what an Ebenezer is. But it's not just for the Old Testament. It's for us as well. Think of the Ebenezers that God has provided in our life. We talked about one last week, communion, or the Lord's Supper. That every time we gather together as a church and we remember communion, we're intentionally remembering the death, the life, the resurrection, and the second coming of Christ we're remembering the goodness of the gospel, remembering that in our sin, we're more sinful and wicked and depraved than we can imagine, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we could ever hope or dream. God knew we needed a reminder, a regular reminder. So Jesus told us to remember communion as a church, to remember it regularly. Or how about the other ordinance? Baptism. Baptism, it's a response to our salvation. Baptism, it doesn't save us, but it's an opportunity for us to drive that stake in the ground and to declare to everyone around us that we believe in Jesus. Baptism is a symbol of what's happened in our heart. But it's an Ebenezer. It's a reminder that we've given our life to Jesus. And if you've never been baptized and you believe in Jesus, then maybe it's time to take that step of obedience. At our third Monday service in January, we're going to have another baptism service. We did one last winter. It was Maybe my most favorite third Monday service we've ever done, it was incredible. And maybe God's calling you to be baptized if you haven't been yet. But God has given us those tangible reminders, those Ebenezers in our faith. But here's another one, his word, Scripture. It's an Ebenezer, it's a reminder of his faithfulness. And, and God asks us to spend time in his word, reminding us what he's done for us. That's what we see in our text tonight. We're going to start chapter 3 in Second Peter I'll be reading out of the ESV. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. See what Peter's saying? I'm stirring up your sincere mind. He's saying, your mind is pure. Your motives are pure. The false teachers, the scoffers, their motives weren't pure. But Peter's audience, their motives were pure. Peter knew that they were forgetful. He knew that their mind needed to be stirred up. They needed a reminder. And where does he point them? Well, he points them to the prophets. He points them to the Lord and Savior through the apostles. He points them back to Scripture. He reminds them to go back to what God's Word has said, to spend time in God's Word. He wants to make sure that there's some things that we don't forget. So a couple reminders tonight, our principles, don't forget, the first thing we shouldn't forget is that you are forgetful. Don't forget you're forgetful. It sounds kind of obvious, doesn't it? But wait, if someone's forgetful, but they don't realize they're forgetful, it's kind of dangerous, isn't it? When someone's forgetful, they don't realize that they're forgetful. They don't set up any of the safety nets to prevent some of the damage that can come when they forget something important if you're forgetful you should have important dates in your calendar if you're married and you're forgetful your anniversary should be in your calendar right just a a word of wisdom for the future health of your marriage don't forget that you're forgetful but think about how that applies spiritually we need to continue to exercise our spiritual mind keeping our spiritual memory sharp so that we don't forget the important things Peter encourages us to remember the predictions of the prophets, remembering the predictions through Christ, through the apostles. That's what Peter is saying. He talked about this within the last couple of chapters, that if we're going to remember God's faithfulness, we have to be in Scripture. If we're going to remember what God's done, if we're going to exercise our spiritual minds, then we have to be in God's Word. And I'm not talking about a U-version topical reading plan. I'm not talking about the verse of the day that gets pushed as a notification to your phone. No, we need a healthy intake of God's word—Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, Epistles, Prophets, Narrative. We need to read God's word. Otherwise, we're going to forget. We're going to forget what God has done in the past. We're going to forget what He's promised in the future. When we read God's word, when we memorize God's word, then we're going to remember some of the most important spiritual things. But When we aren't in God's Word, when we're not reading it, when we're not memorizing it, then it's going to be much easier for us to believe the scoffers. Is Jesus actually coming back? It'll be easier for us to believe the temptation of the enemy. Maybe I'm not actually forgiven. Maybe I am too bad to be forgiven. Maybe this Jesus thing is just a big smokescreen. But instead, when we're in God's Word, we're reminded often of the most important doctrines of our faith, And Peter focuses in on one of those doctrines in our text tonight. The one thing that he wants us to remember is the second coming. Look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What's the main thing that Peter wants us to remember? Remember? He wants us to remember the second coming. He wants us to remember that Jesus is coming back. That's the second thing tonight. Don't forget that Jesus is coming back. Don't forget Jesus is coming back. This was fuzzy for the disciples. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. After Jesus was resurrected from the dead, during that period of 40 days when he walked on the earth, he appeared to the disciples, he appeared to hundreds of people. Even then, it was, it was fuzzy. Think about Acts in chapter 1, starting in verse 6, the disciples are hanging out with Jesus, and here's what the text says. So when they, the disciples, they come together, they asked him, Lord, this is Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Here's what the disciples are asking. Jesus, are you going to overthrow the Romans? Jesus, now is the time that you're going to establish your kingdom. Now is the time where we're going to reign with you. Now the time, now the time when you're going to restore the glory to Israel, everything's going to be great, and now's going to be the kingdom. Jesus, this is it, right? This is what we've been waiting for. Jesus says, not so fast. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And when he'd send these things, said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee! Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. It's the second coming. And this promise that the angels made to the disciples is the same promise that you and I are clinging to. We're waiting for Jesus to come back in the same way that he ascended into heaven. Within our text tonight and within scripture, the The authors of Scripture often use the time period right before Jesus' second coming. They talk about it as the last days. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Have you ever heard anyone say, we're living in the last days? I've definitely heard that, especially recently. That's what we would call the time between the comings. We've been living in the last days as believers for the last 2,000 years. And if you think that Jesus could come back at any moment, then you're in good company. Believers have believed that. For thousands of years. Many have believed that Jesus would return within their lifetime. We believe that Jesus' return is imminent, which means it could happen at any moment. But at the same time, we're still waiting 2,000 years later for the fulfillment of this promise for the second coming of Christ. And even though the concept of the second coming, it it didn't click for the disciples in Acts 1, it certainly clicked in the New Testament. There are some 300 disciples unique references to the second coming within the pages of the New Testament. 300! This is not just some secondary theme. Over and over and over again, the authors talk about the second coming. Even Jesus, he talked about the second coming. Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Jesus talked about the second coming. Think about the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 9, verse 27 says this, and just as it's appointed for man to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The author of Hebrews is talking about the second coming over and over and over again. The authors in the New Testament, they don't just predict, they promise, they guarantee that Jesus is coming back. But that's not what the scoffer said. That's not what Peter's opponents said. The false teachers, they laughed at the claim of the second coming. They said things like, Jesus, he's coming back? What a joke. That's just an urban legend. There's no rules. There's no judgment. There's no second coming. Just do whatever you want. And maybe we've heard a similar claim today, something like, stupid Christians, you've been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back? let me break it to you. It's more likely that the real Saint Nick is going to come down your chimney than for Jesus to come back on a white horse. It's not going to happen. But that's not what the pages of the New Testament say. Peter predicted that there would be scoffers in the last days saying that this is a myth, it's a legend, Jesus is coming back. Meanwhile, Peter says, don't forget the second coming. Because when we forget that Jesus is coming back, we focus on on building our earthly kingdoms rather than building Jesus' eternal kingdom. When we forget the second coming, we get far too worked up about a midterm election, forgetting that someday soon Jesus is going to be the one who's reigning as king. When we forget that Jesus is coming back, we allow a conflict between another believer to simmer and go unresolved because we forget that we're going to be standing next to them for all of eternity. When we forget that Jesus is coming back, we, we forget that our life here is just a tent. It's temporary, but our home is in eternity. When we forget that Jesus is coming back, then we forget that everything here is destined for destruction by fire. Friends, we are far too easily distracted and way too easily pleased. If I had to guess, the hour that you spent on TikTok yesterday did absolutely nothing to remind you about God's faithfulness. Or the half hour that you spent scrolling through an Instagram or a YouTube reel did nothing to remind you of Jesus' second coming. Life's busy. Life's distracted. And unless we're intentional to remember that Jesus is coming back, we're just going to forget. It's just going to escape our memory. We're just not going to remember. We're going to get distracted by everything else that we have going on. We're going to be building our own earthly kingdoms. Meanwhile, forgetting that Jesus could come back today. We have to intentionally remember the second coming. We've got to read scripture that talks about the second coming. We've got to talk about the second coming. We've got to sing songs about the second coming. We've got to have conversations with other believers about the second coming. We've got to remember that every day that we wake up, today could be the day that Jesus comes back. Peter says, don't forget the second coming. But did you see why the, the scoffers forgot the second coming? Did you see their rationale in verse 4? They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. (laughs) They championed uniformitarianism 1,800 years before it was invented. You might not know the term. There's your biggest word of the day. But you certainly learned about it, likely in your science classroom in high school or in college. The present is the key to the past. How you see things operate today is how things have always been. That's what the false teachers are saying. Uniformitarianism was popularized by a man named Charles Lyell in his book, Principles of Geology. You might not know the name Lyell, but you know the name Darwin. And Lyell's book was majorly instrumental in Darwin's life and beliefs and writings. He took a copy with him on his five-year journey on the HMS Beagle, paved the way for his theory of evolution and natural selection. But the scoffers in our text, they claim the same thing. The world has just continued the same way since the beginning. God has never intervened. Jesus isn't coming back because God has never intervened with his creation in the first place. But Peter calls their bluff. Look at verse 5. For they, the scoffers, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, Peter's saying that these false teachers, the scoffers, they were deliberately, they were intentionally forgetful. They denied the reality of the first 10 chapters of the Bible. Peter wisely takes us right back to the book of Genesis to remind us of the insanity of the false teacher's claim. Things do not exist the way that they always have. Uniformitarianism is not consistent with what we see in Scripture. The false teachers claimed that the present is the key to the past, but the Bible actually claims something a little bit different in our text tonight. The past is the key to the future. That's the third thing that we shouldn't forget. The past informs the future. Peter reminds us that God's been at work actively involved in his creation from the beginning. He's the creator. God as creator is a major non-negotiable for the Christian faith. If we're just here because of random chance, if we're just here because of natural selection, if we're just the product of random genetic mutations over billions of years and everything we see is just happenstance, then there's no need for God. There's no accountability to a creator. There's no love and care from an all-powerful and everywhere present God. But that's not what Genesis says. Think of Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A verse you probably have memorized. Do you have verse 2 memorized? It's not quite as simple. The earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What in the world does that mean? The face of the waters? Actually, it sounds a little bit like our text tonight in 2 Peter. Genesis 1-1 and verse 2 are more than just a summary statement of creation. I believe that Genesis 1-1 and verse 2 are what we might call God's first creative act. We believe that God created out of nothing, Latin phrase ex nihilo, Hebrews 11 verse three says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what was not, that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God created something out of nothing. God's first act was to create the the space, Genesis 1.1. And then the second act was to gather the materials. I think that's verse two like an artist working with ceramics. Before you form the clay, the first thing you have to do is gather the material. You've got to gather the clay. That's verse two. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The author is trying to find some way to explain and and picture the, the watery chaos from which God created. But did you notice the how of creation? Genesis and in Peter. God created through his word. Psalm 33 33 verse 9 says, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. But what was the word that created? Who was the word that created? This may be a better question. I think the answer is in a couple of texts. John 1 would be, John 1, 1 through 3 is one. Here's another, Colossians 1. Verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the word by which all things were created. God the Father is the designer, the architect, while Jesus is the master builder. The spirit was and is present within creation. And as Jesus spoke the world into existence through the power of his word, both the text in Genesis and in Peter give this picture of creating out of water. Did you catch that in 2 Peter? It's actually what we see in Genesis 1 verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And he called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Interesting to try to picture what was happening on the second day of creation, that God took the watery chaos and he separated it. It's what Peter talks about in our text as well. Peter says that the earth was created from water or out of water. I don't think that means that water was the element by which all things were created. I think Peter's simply saying that the earth emerged out of the water, which is actually what we see on the third day of creation. But there was this water below and this water above. A phrase for the water above in our text sometimes is translated canopy. Many believe that this canopy of water actually covered the earth up until the time of Noah's flood. This is speculative, but... Some think that the canopy of water then allowed for an atmosphere uh, around the world that was much more consistent, allowed people to live longer because they weren't suffering the UV rays that you and I might suffer today. This is even more speculative, but some believe then that God used a meteor to initiate the flood waters coming from the canopy at Noah's flood. No way to prove that, but interesting things to consider. But Peter's saying not only was God actively involved in creating the world, but God is actively involved in sustaining and intervening in his creation. Peter says that the scoffers overlooked this one huge fact, that the sinful world, the Greek word cosmos that existed long ago, was deluged with water. Is the word deluged in your vocabulary every day? Because it probably should be. It comes from the Greek word katakluzo, which is where we uh, derive our word cataclysm. Peter's talking about the fact, not fiction, of Noah's flood. The Genesis account in Genesis 6 through 8. You've heard it. You've heard the stories about Noah. You've sang the songs about Noah. But a global flood, isn't that just a myth? A fable? A story? A parable? actually, when we read Scripture, the Bible never treats Noah's flood as a myth. It treats it as a fact. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about Noah and the flood as a picture of what his return is going to look like. It treats Noah as historical. Hebrews 11:7 treats Noah and the flood as historical. Peter talks about Noah not once, but twice, once in each of his letters. Isaiah references the historicity of the flood. The Bible treats the flood account as a historical cataclysmic event. But what about science? Does science support the idea of a global flood? Personally, I think so. So we're going to do a quick trip down the rabbit trail of apologetics tonight. But did you know that Christianity is not the only religion or faith tradition that talks about a global flood? Discovered in the 19th century, the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh, also teaches a global flood. Greek mythology, Roman mythology, both include flood accounts. Where do they come from? Do all these faith traditions, worldviews, do they just have their own parable? They all happen to align? Or are they all pulling from the same historical events? I believe that the latter makes more sense. But when we think about creation, when we think about the flood. One of the challenges is that nobody was there. Noah didn't have an iPhone 14 videotaping the flood and putting it up on his personal Instagram, right? It'd be kind of cool, but that didn't exist. So what are we left with? Well, we're left with archaeology. We're left with geology to try to determine what happened in the past. It's interesting if you start reading about the flood. You'll go to Young Earth Creation websites and They'll interpret this group of evidence and they'll say, because of this evidence, the flood exists. And then you'll go to some other websites that are probably more inclined to believe the flood didn't happen. And they look at the same evidence and say, well, obviously the flood didn't happen. What? How does that work? How can you look at one piece of evidence and interpret it two completely different ways? I don't know, I'm not an archaeologist or geologist. That is way above my pay grade. So instead of looking at geology and archaeology tonight, To demonstrate the flood, I want to look at something a little bit more recent. A cataclysmic event. Does it prove the flood? No. But it gives us a little bit of an idea of how a cataclysmic event happens in history and changes archaeology and geology in the present. 1980. Some of you were born, most of you weren't. Washington State, the eruption of Mount St. Helens. One of the most cataclysmic events in recent memory, when it went off, exploded with the power of 400 million tons of TNT. That's the same as 33,000 World War II era atomic bombs. That is a lot of power. It launched two-thirds of a cubic mile of rock a mile into the air, leaving a giant crater in the mountain, dropping the elevation by over 1,000 feet. And there are some very interesting things that happened geologically surrounding Mount St. Helens. For example, a forest got transported to the bottom of Spirit Lake right next to Mount St. Helens. And what they discovered is that the foliage that then went to the bottom of this lake, after five years, formed something very, very similar to what you and I would call coal. It takes coal at least a thousand years to form. But after Mount St. Helens, it's about five. Interesting. At the same time when the volcano went off, all the sediment went launching into the air and it came down, and in some spots the sediment was twenty-five feet thick. But it was all in unique layers. Some were just this thick, some were much thicker. But they were all unique, they were all different. They realized that these layers were formed in a minute or two. The layers looked similar to what you and I might find at the Grand Canyon. The layers didn't form in millions of years. They formed in actually a matter of minutes. See, one of my favorite uh, things about Mount St. Helens is what they actually call the mini Grand Canyon. It's a 40th of the size of the Grand Canyon, and they look remarkably similar. But the mini Grand Canyon outside of Mount St. Helens, it formed in two separate events, one day in 1980 and then a follow-up event in 1982. The follow-up event is actually a mud flow and the mud flow cut through, not sediment, it cut through basalt rock. You look at it, it looks just like the Grand Canyon, just on a smaller scale. It formed not over millions of years, it formed in two separate one-day events. Now, if you and I go to the Grand Canyon and and someone believes that the Grand Canyon was formed by erosion from the Colorado River, logically, it's going to take a really, really, really long time to carve that big of a hole. But Mount St. Helens indicated that maybe a cataclysmic event could create something like that a little bit quicker. In 1996, they pulled... uh, couple rock samples from the lava flow at Mount St. Helens, and they did, tried to date it using potassium-argon <clears throat> dating. The rock was 350,000 years old, and the minerals that came out of the rock were 2.4 million years old through that dating method, but they were really only 15 years old. That's a pretty big gap, isn't it? Reminding us that potentially some of the dating methods aren't always as accurate as one might believe. Now, did those things prove the flood? No, they don't. But it demonstrates how a cataclysmic event like Noah's flood could greatly influence and impact what we see in our world today. But Peter brings up the flood for a very important theological purpose, not just an apologetics purpose. The scoffers deliberately neglected biblical history Peter reminds us that the present isn't the key to the past, but the past is the key to the future. God has always been. He will always be involved in his creation. But Peter's saying that if God destroyed the world once, then what's going to prevent him from doing the same thing again? Our passage really ties the entire book together. Think about chapter 2. Peter uses Noah and Lot as examples God saves Noah while destroying the rest of the world with fire. God saves, or the rest of the world with a flood. God saves Lot while destroying Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. In our text tonight, again we see water and fire. If God destroyed the world once with a flood, if He can destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire, it's a picture of what's coming in the future. What happened to the flood? It's even going to be more cataclysmic when God destroys the world with fire. If God can destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, it's just a microcosm of what will happen to the entire world at the return of Christ. When you and I think of Jesus' return, we think of the, the happy side, don't we? We think about no more tears, no more pain. We think about being with Jesus for all of eternity. We think about reigning with Jesus. We think about seeing our family members and our friends that have gone before us. Good things? No, they're, they're great things to think about. That's not the side of Jesus' return, the aspect that Peter's focusing on. Peter reminds us that, yes, Jesus will rescue the godly, but he's holding the ungodly, the unrighteous world, under judgment until his return. The destiny of the unsaved, ungodly world is destruction by fire. Yes, God's going to preserve us. Yes, he's going to save us if we know him, but we can't forget about the destruction that's going to come on our world. And I hope that doesn't fire us up and make us think, yeah, God's fire's coming. I don't think that's the right way to respond. I hope it sobers us up, realizing that the day Jesus comes back, there's no more hope for those that don't know Christ. I hope it grows our heart of compassion, and our love for those that don't know Jesus, our eagerness to share. Today could be it. Today could be your last chance. Just as Olgan encouraged those men in the DR, those Haitian men, you've got to believe. You've got to know. You've got to place your faith in Jesus. We need to do the same thing. Don't forget that you're forgetful. Don't forget that Jesus is coming back. And don't forget that what God has done in the past, he'll do again. Let's pray. Father, Second Peter has not been an easy book, both to understand and to interpret, but to apply to our life. It's been hard even to think about judgment, the second coming, sobering, as it's easy to be distracted. It's easy to, to fill our lives with, um, with good things, but sometimes distracting things. So allow the thought of the second coming and the coming judgment. Orient our priorities today to stay focused, to stay on the path that you have for us. As we dialogue a little bit in our small groups tonight, may you guide this next phase of our night together. In Jesus' name, amen.